Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This morning we are beginning a new series, and I want to start this new series with an imaginary illustration. Christiana Martin has gone off to grad school in this imaginary illustration. Where's Christiana? There she is. And, and you haven't seen her for a couple of years. But you decide that she's in town and you want to catch up with her. So you go get coffee with her. Christiana, raise your hand so everyone can know who they're getting coffee with. She's right there. And, and you just want to find out how she's doing. You know, she started a new church, but you really don't know anything about it and how it's been for her. So as you talk over your Cafe Rio, because that's what we're having today, and you just you, you guys are like, oh, memory anniversary, Cafe Rio, let's go to Cafe Rio, so that's where you go. I'm already adding to my minutes here. Anyway, you want to know about a new church home. And, and, and so you just open it up with just saying, Christiana, how's it going at Hope Covenant Church? And she says, oh, it's interesting. Yeah, tell me. Well... There's some folks suing each other. Did we used to sue each other? Uh, what? Yeah, there's a lot of arguing going on. A lot of conflicts. I'm doing a little bit of Christiana with the head nodding. And and some of the folks have now taken it to the next level and brought some lawsuits. Oh, man, that's that's so hard. Yeah, it's very much a Law & Order TV series atmosphere sometimes. But But, you know, that's better than some of the other stuff. Like what? Like this one guy, Reginald? I think that's his name. He's kind of caused a ruckus. He got married to his mom or his stepmom. At least some kind of mom, definitely, to him. But yeah, he said he loves her and that's what matters and they got married. What? Yeah, some people are freaking out, but most people are saying we should be proud to be a church that accepts everyone. It's confusing because we should love everybody, right? Yeah, but love doesn't mean allow everything. I mean, that sounds crazy. Yeah, it does. It sounds crazy, and I'm starting to feel funny about it, and I'm starting to feel funny about the communion team I'm on. Why? Well, we use real wine, which is cool, because it's like the Bible times, but some of the folks are bringing it home and drinking a lot of it at their house, at these parties. I guess they're getting drunk on it. Are you serious? Yeah, that's what I hear. I... I hear about it. I actually don't get invited to those parties. I'm not sure they like me because I didn't get a college degree. And apparently, in this scenario, you don't have a college degree. I didn't get a college degree, and they say I don't have a high enough income. So I don't actually have a lot of friends at the church yet. Well, is there anything healthy going? Like, is there a healthy small group you can get involved in? Yeah, maybe. There's this one near my house that seems cool. But you can only go if you sign some sheet that says that you've read all of Francis Chan's stuff. And you, and you agree with him completely about the house church movement, and you make a vow not to listen to 99.1 WGTS music. They say it's too superficial, especially Chris Tomlin, and if they hear you humming, good, good father, they ask you to leave. They're really strong in their convictions, though. That, that's healthy, right? To have those strong spiritual convictions? Well, that seems kind of harsh, kind of elitist. Yeah, but it's, I think it's gonna be better than the last group I was in. Oh, yeah. I think you told me about that when you first got there, the Supreme Evangelizers. Or do you mean the first, was it the first group of, or was it after, the, the, the True Covenant Spirit Healers? Was that the name? Yeah, the True Covenant Spirit Healers. And they didn't like me after a while because I couldn't get tongues going and they just felt like I wasn't 
making it spiritually. And they may not be meeting anymore anyway, though, because they're one of the groups that's getting sued by the Piperizer Calvinizer group. I think they're actually the chief plaintiffs of many of these lawsuits, the Piperizer Calvinizers. But anyway, I did get invited to one group that seems friendly, really friendly. Uh, yeah, what about that one? Well, they have this long name, and they, they have this, like, you know, what is it? Well, it's called the Small Group for the Preservation of Sexual Liberation. Uh, Christiana, that sounds really tricky. Have you asked the pastor about all this? What, is, what does he think about all this stuff? Well, she's really busy with seminary. She, you have women pastors? Doesn't the Bible say that, you know, women shouldn't have that kind of... Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Did we talk about that at our church? But anyway, she's really busy. She's like, I can't meet with her anyway. She's working on her doctoral dissertation on how the resurrection was likely an illusion caused by mercury in the Sea of Galilee. So I've been making appointments, but I haven't gotten scheduled because of her mercury research. Christiana, can I be honest with you? What would you say to Christiana about her church? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Christiana would never, right, right. But what would you say to her? What would you say to her? I mean, what would you say to her church? What would you say to her church if you could get up and, and proclaim something to them? You know, you might be surprised. I was surprised as I considered all that's in this letter of 1 Corinthians that the church in Corinth had these issues. By and large, they had, it sounds really silly and strange to us, but to them it was their church. It was their existence when Paul wrote to them. All these issues in one way or another are are in this church in 1 Corinthians. And you might be more surprised as we go along in this book to realize that much of what we're facing as a church inside, even if it's just in seed form, and we're increasingly facing in the culture around us, is very Corinthian in nature. We have a church that resonates with this book. We have issues in our church that resonate with their issues inside our soul as a church. And that are invading our soul from the outside as a church. And it's for that reason that the culture growing in the Corinthian church on the inside and the culture invading the Corinthian church on the outside resonates so deeply with our own situation. It's for that reason that we're moving into 1 Corinthians as a series. But especially this morning, I I don't want to get all into that hugely. I want to ask this basic question again, which is, what do you say to this church? What do you say to a church like Christiana's? What do you say to a church like Corinth? What do you say to a church that's facing much of the same things like ours? What should be said to such a church? So... To gear up for the answer to that question, which I think this chapter will provide, I want to set more of a backdrop and spend a little bit of time talking about the city of Corinth. Hopefully this will help us understand their challenges even better and how they relate to our own a little bit better as well. So before I do that, though, I need to pray because we need to pray. We just need more help from God. So would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, I am so happy to be with your people, singing songs about you, seeing people I love, being able to hug them and talk to them and remember you. And I just thank you for the privilege of being able to prepare this week and having your word work on me as I try to. And I just pray 
In Jesus' name, that your word would do its work this morning. It would not return void. It would, it would, it would interrupt and invade and affect our hearts. And it would do a job on us this morning. That we would leave here having been met by you in your word. That we would see you through your word. That we would have an encounter with you this morning. Lord, use me or go around me. Do whatever you need to do that each and every one in this room would experience, Lord, some measure of grace from their father this morning through your word. And for those who don't know you, Lord, call them, call them, seek them because you in the person of your son came to seek and save the lost. Pour much grace on us this morning. Pour much grace on us, Lord. Anoint your word. Anoint this time for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, we pray. Corinth, Corinth, this is the city we're we're dealing with in this letter. It was a metropolis of the very first order. It was located in an extremely economically advantageous position. Let's look at a map of Corinth, this one. Corinth is right above the word Greece. Do you see Greece? And right above Greece, you see the little word Corinth. That city connected the eastern part of the Roman Empire to the western part of the Roman Empire. It connected Greece in the north, Macedonia and Thrace, with Greece below, and that big little peninsula it's part of. Two huge ports are right there. And so it was just a major, major metropolis. It sat at a narrow four-mile strip of land called an isthmus, that was a key to attach itself to north and southern Greece, which I've already gone. But, but even bigger, it connected the Roman Empire. And so everyone who went through Corinth, everyone who, who traveled in the Mediterranean would, would often have to go through Corinth. It's kind of like, do you ever go to Paris? And for whatever reason, they take you to Chicago before you go to Paris. It's just something you have to do. Like to get to Paris, you have to go back out to Chicago. Or to get to Turkey, I had to go through Atlanta. What's Atlanta got to do? It's just the way it worked. But similarly, to get somewhere in the Mediterranean, you often had to go through Corinth. And it was a smorgasbord of cultures, taking in goods and customs and religions from Spain, from Italy, from Sicily, from Libya, from Syria, Phoenicia, from Egypt. You could get carpets, and you could get ivory, you could get Babylonian spices and Lyconian wool. So when you think of Corinth, don't think ancient ruins and church mission trips to see Paul's journeys. Think Hong Kong now. Think New York now. Think about 600,000 people at its height. Greeks and Jews and Asians. They're all there. Sailors and merchants and traders. Magistrates, citizens, powerful elites. Impoverished. It was a culture of great wealth and a culture of poverty. All the tensions that exist between the classes were there. Huge propensities towards ambition and greed and elitism and going after it. You were defined by the money you made. You were defined by the education you had. It was also home to poverty and many who had little. Haves and have-nots next to each other. Fighting on the social ladder. Jealousy and competition marked the populace. It was also home to great temples and coliseums which were centers of entertainment that morphed at times into horror films made real. You had one temple for Poseidon. Is the site of this game called the Isthmian Games, which rivaled the Olympic Games in Athens. 
But Corinth also held gladiatorial duels where the wealthy would pay to see less fortunate people literally murder each other for their viewing pleasure. Something that would make, you know, UCF fans blush, at least for the time being. But of all things, Corinth was legendary for its sexual immorality. In Greek literature, the name Corinth came to be synonymous with immoral debauchery. To Corinthasai was to fornicate, to have sex immorally or before marriage. To be a Corinthiastes was to be a madam or the male version of a madam. A Corinthia described a female prostitute. These were names used in Greek literature that were all sourced in the reality of the immorality in the city. On the hill Acropolis, 2,000 feet above the city, there was a great temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And it was famously written as employing a 1,000 temple prostitutes, where in the evening one could mingle your spirituality with sexual fulfillment. In the morning, these ladies of the night would come down to the city to offer their services to folks in the afternoon. At the base of the temple, at the base of the city was another temple to Apollo, not to the female deity, but to a male deity. And the corresponding sexual fulfillment that went there, according to Alistair Begg, this temple became the center to the most licentious forms of same-sex immorality. So we have this huge soup of cultural and religious and economic diversity, people from many backgrounds, melting into the cityscape of wealth and poverty, ambition, class tensions, tremendous immorality and debauchery. And it's into this eclectic, sprawling soup that Paul jumps in with the gospel sometime around 52 AD. We see this depicted in Acts 18. And I think we can post that. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. What that means is that Silas and Timothy were able to supply Paul's income so that he could give himself fully to preaching. And he was testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And listen to this. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul planted a church. He comes to this great city. God brings him to work in a tent-making office. Some co-workers apparently are converts. That he converts, Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And soon Silas and Timothy come, provide support so he can preach. He's rejected in the synagogue. But the ruler believes, and many other people come to believe, a church is born. And he doesn't leave this baby church. He stays for a year and a half. Could you imagine having Paul for a year and a half as your leader? Pastor Paul, 
the apostle. Could you imagine? I mean, it, it would just seem like it would be the greatest church you could ever be in. Like the healthiest disciples you could ever hope to meet. Think about it. The great apostle worked harder than them all, he says. Takes the pulpit every Sunday for preaching. He leads every pastoral staff meeting. Could you imagine the growth? Like the fruitfulness? And the people that you draw in? This is a man who could raise people from the dead? What building you'd have to get to keep up with the work of the Spirit? And when at last he sets out for war ministry after 18 months of sowing into your community, could you imagine the leadership, the discipleship culture he'd leave behind? I mean, I would have to imagine it would be the greatest church ever planted. Could you imagine how deep the bench would be? Like David Platt and John Piper would barely be allowed to serve parking lot duty in that church. But sometime after Paul leaves, trouble grows. And it grows. And it grows. And this letter which he writes to this church that we're going to go through, it tells the story of that trouble that grew very shortly after he leaves. And it's actually the second letter. First Corinthians is the second letter that he's written to them. He'll write four. Disciples are dividing. They're not coming together. They're claiming superiority over another for their insights, their brilliance, their identification with their favorite teachers. More and more, they're putting their faith in men and their brilliance and their eloquence and their intellect and just loving each other for Jesus' sake. Soon they're putting Paul down, accusing him and judging him. Some conflicts are getting so bad they're literally moving the brawl from the church into the streets by suing each other in civil court. Now the world that they're supposed to be witnessing to becomes the judge and the jury for them to accuse one another before. There's incest in the church. A man marries his legal mother, probably an unbelieving stepmother. Even the world knows this is crazy. But far from practicing church discipline for the sake of this man's soul and the purity of the church, they are proud. They're proud. Look how tolerant and free and non-judgmental we are. Might have been their reply. The trouble goes on. They're flirting with their former lives of idolatry among the Greek gods. Adultery, prostitution are real questions. Homosexuality, it calls them again. Drunkenness, lying, stealing. Paul has to remind them, this is not how God's people lived. This is not who you are. They're getting drunk at communion. (laughs) Some of them are dying out of God's discipline. The church order is becoming inverted God's design for male leadership in the church and in the home is being turned upside down. They're becoming fixated on unusual manifestations of the spirit, not for love's sake, but in order to feel spectacular and superior. They're mistreating the poor among them. And they're using gospel freedom to indulge selfish disregard for God's purity and for the sake of other believers who might not feel the same sense of freedom. Paul has to warn them at times severely concerning their grumbling and their critical spirit. Finally, they're questioning the very cornerstone of the faith, whether or not Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. 
This is the church in Corinth. So let's come back to our original question. What do you say to a church like this? How do you speak to a situation like this? What do you say? It's overwhelming. It's scary. Who wouldn't want to run to the hills? What pastor or leader would would want to try to come in and clean this up? How much they need correction and shocking. Shocking response. I mean, what are you doing? What are you doing to each other? What are you doing before the world? What are you doing to your own bodies? Here's how Paul speaks to the church. Here's what Paul says. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. He might be that synagogue ruler. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints. Together with all those who in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both their Lord and ours. Grace to you. And peace. From God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. It turns out that's what you say to that church. You say other things, but that's where you start. And that is mind-blowing to me. That is not what I would think you would say. And I'm sad to say I don't think that's my instinct enough. But this is amazing, amazing grace. Paul is doing something so otherworldly, so full of mercy, so full of wise and gentle pastoral care, so spirit-filled, so full of hope. It's just obvious they don't deserve it. It's just obvious it doesn't match with what they've done and who they're being. But that's not the root of who they are to Paul. He knows these people. They're his children. He preached the gospel to so many of them. He saw them when they first became babes in Christ. And they left their old life. 
He saw it with his own eyes. He sat with them for a year and a half. And he's not going to let what they're doing, what they're looking like, be bigger than who God has made them. Paul speaks to this church not according to what they deserve, not according to their performance, not according to their experience. No, he speaks to them according to the truth about them because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's where he starts. That's the foundation. And he will knock that ball out of the park again and again throughout this book. And I think that's probably the most important thing for us to watch. Is how Paul will root everything he calls them to, everything he calls them out of, in their identity in Christ Jesus. In light of the cross and its power to deliver and save and clean. To those acting anything but holy, anything but holy, Paul says, you are already sanctified. That Greek word means holy. You are already holy in Christ Jesus. To those feeling and giving in to the call of division and proud separation. Paul says, you are called to be holy together with all of God's people to whom you belong. To those abusing the grace of Almighty God scandalously, full of strife, at war with each other. He says, grace and peace. To you. In the middle of your strife and enmity, grace and peace I call out to be given to you from God your Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To a church accusing and discrediting Paul himself and causing him anguish, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. I saw you. You were born again, and I'm still rejoicing over it. To a church in danger of idolizing worldly knowledge, education, income, worldly ways of thinking, he reminds them of all they already have in God. They don't need to whore themselves to cheap substitutes. In every way, you were enriched in him. In all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, I saw it. To a church that's very well abusing God's spiritual gifts, rather than threaten their removal or their drying up, he says, you're not lacking in any gift. God's giving you all you need. He's going to give you all you need. To a church that's hearing that the resurrection was a falsehood, he reminds them, of the truth of their life to come as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. To a church that had every reason to look at their performance and doubt their salvation, to feel condemned for their sin and fear, their own ability to finish the race and persevere, what does he say with tenderness? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, Guiltless. You're going to write everything you're going to write for the next 15, 16 chapters. And you, you know that. You know the problems. And you're calling me guiltless? Sustained guiltless? 
Do you know what I've been looking at? Do you know who I've been sleeping with? Do you know how angry I am at that guy? He's torn up my life. It's all I can think about. And you tell me I'm guiltless? To a church that could reasonably wonder how in the world it was getting to get out of the mess it was in. That had every reason to feel estranged and ashamed before the Father. He says to them, God is faithful. By whom you were called into fellowship. Of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Your relationships are broken. He calls you to relational restoration with himself. Is this what you would have said to that church at lunch with Christiana? I don't think it's what I would have said. And of course, Paul will have much more to say. He will have to directly and strongly address their sin, their division, their selfishness, their confusion. He's not a coward. He's a good father in the Lord. He knows they need discipline. He knows they need rebuke. But mark this. If we do anything with this series, mark this. And by God's grace, as we teach it, we'll try to mark it with you. Because this should be life-changing for me. It should be life-changing for you. Paul will continue, even through his correction, to remind them again and again who they are in Jesus. That it's because of who Jesus is, because they belong to Jesus, because he lives in them, because he's operating in them, because he's stronger than them, that they can be who they really are. As he says in the very first verses, saints called to be saints. That's what he says. You are sanctified, called to be saints. You are holy, called to be holy. And if our eyes are open to it, we'll see this again and again as he judges them not according to their performance, but according to the faithfulness of God and the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's how he sees them. That's how he sees them when he looks at them. He doesn't ignore their mess. He addresses it, but he doesn't stop looking at them as those in Christ Jesus. And I feel so burdened that that's what I need and that's what you need. That, that we need this as a church. We need to look at each other as those in Christ Jesus. Through all that we're going through, through all the divisions and all the difficulties we have and all the challenges, it has to start there and has to continue to thread through all that stuff. That I look at you as my brother in Christ Jesus. You are born again into a living hope. And we got stuff to sort out. But you are born again. And God will be faithful to you till the end. Stephen T. Um. Is it a real name? Mr. Um. He's like a professor, a teacher. Mr. Um. How many jokes does he make with that last name and gets old. It just got old up here. How old must it have gotten for him by now? Anyway, Stephen T. Um, 
says it well. This is, this is a long quote, and I'm going to send this out tomorrow. It is so worth it. Listen to this. Listen to these words. Paul's laser focus on the work of God and Christ is meant to frame the entirety of his reflection throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. He wants the troubled church that he is addressing to know this. God's objective reality overrides their subjective experience. Christ's work on their behalf is more foundational to their identity than their ability to sully it with their feelings. Oh, how I need this. How you need this. He is essentially saying, look, Corinthian church, you may be falling apart at the seams, but the God who called you has secured your past, your present and future. He is holding you together. Andrew did not read this manuscript, and he said that exact same thing a few minutes ago up here during announcements, if you were listening. What does this mean for us? Mr. Um asks. It means our status as sanctified and saints is not based upon our work, but upon the work of another. Our identity is sure because it was given to us by someone else. Our gifts are sure and sufficient because they were given to us by the gift maker. And our future is secure because it has been prepared for us by the one who holds the future in his hands. Because we live in a meritocracy, that's a a culture that rewards us for our performance and punishes us for our lack of performance. Because we live in a meritocracy, this sounds alien. The gospel is an anomaly. It's strange. It doesn't make sense. It's an anomaly in a culture that runs on self-definition, self-help, and self-realization. But for those who have reached the bitter end of identity building, competency maintenance, and future building, it is the greatest news imaginable. In the gospel, God declares us presentable before he even looks at our record. The gospel says, stop striving to build an identity. You have been given one free of charge because of the striving of another in your place. Last sentence. You no longer have to live in order to build identity, but you can live into the identity that has been given to you. Like the Corinthians, we are a people with real challenges, real weaknesses. This letter has much to say to us about our relationships with each other, our personal moral purity, our care for the poor and the marginalized, the use of our liberties, like entertainment and social media, our need to center our hope in the life to come. This letter will have much to say to us as it calls us to be saints, as we truly are. But the most important thing, may God give us the grace to hear those things in light of his grace, of his faithfulness, of who we are already in him. Brothers and sisters, we are already saints. And now we're called to live and love as saints. We can look at one another as those who have been made new in Christ. We can already, even through the challenges, give thanks for one another. Because we're born again, because we're new creatures, because God's going to make sure we make it, despite the challenges.
That's God's promise in this letter to us. Despite all experiences to the contrary, despite all challenges to the contrary, despite all attempts of this world and our flesh and the devil, God says to you and he says to me, Living Hope Church, take heart. Jesus will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, how I need this. To more and more govern my heart. Govern my posture. How we need this to fuel our hope. To fuel our view of you. To empower our steps towards each other. How we need this to radiate in our lives that you are faithful. You will do it. That at a church with such, such crisis and such problems. We would be able to boast as the Corinthians should have boast. You are faithful. You will sustain us to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You are faithful and you will do it. Amen.